You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguda, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by 90 Min. I'm your host, Harry Simi, and on this edition, we're going to be reviewing the weekend's Premier League action. I'll be talking to you a little bit more about Arsenal's victory over Newcastle United. We'll look ahead uh, a little bit to the trip to Manchester United, which is coming up on Thursday evening. We'll be talking about the Interim appointment that Manchester United have made. Ralph Ranick is subject is due to join the club, subject to receiving his work permit, which I'm sure isn't going to be a problem. We'll be taking you through the rest of the games. Chelsea won, Manchester United won. We'll be talking about Sean Dyche walking out on a pitch in a shirt. The guy's bloody crazy. All of that and plenty more to come on this live edition of the show. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit the like button. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. If you are new, it really, really does help. And we really appreciate all your support. So get involved. Uh, big hello to everybody watching us uh, at the moment, uh, because I can see there are lots of the usual faces in the chat, which is fantastic. But there's a few new ones as well. So big hello to you guys as well. Welcome. Um, don't forget, if you are listening via the audio platforms, uh, please do leave us a review. That really, really does help. And there's been some really nice ones over the last few days that I've really been proud when reading. So uh, keep those coming. They can be negative as well, by the way. If that's how you feel, that's fine. Uh, but I just love getting feedback because it helps me to improve and it helps me hopefully uh, to develop the podcast into something better. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements before we dive into this show. Uh, first of all, I joined Tom Canton on the Arsenal way. That's football.london's Arsenal YouTube channel. The video is out now. I think they've just tweeted it just before I hit the live button. So please do check that out. Always great fun chatting to Tom. And we had a really good discussion in particular around Thomas Partey. And in addition to that, if you are, are a radio listener, if you enjoy listening to the radio, you can catch me on BBC Radio London, which you can find online through BBC Sounds. I think it's 94.9, I think, in terms of the frequency, if you are in and around London, if you're driving or whatever. But we're doing an Arsenal special between 7 and 8 p.m. tonight. That is, of course, Monday night. I'll be uh, talking with soccer diva Sophie Nicolau from the Highbury Squad and BBC's Aaron Paul. So that should be great fun head over, check it out. And if you fancy calling in, uh, you can call in on that one. The details uh, will be uh, in my last tweet about it, which uh, you can find. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from as many of you as possible. Right. Um, let's get into it then. Uh, let's start off with Arsenal, who remain fifth in the Premier League. And the result, um, the result of the weekend was obviously significant because it was about bouncing back after what was or what could have been a really sort of demoralising defeat against Liverpool. I've said it on the post-match reaction, to bounce back the way we did was imperative. Was the performance great throughout? No, it wasn't. And I've watched the game back again uh, since the weekend. There, there were elements to it that, that weren't great. You know, we were a little bit slow in the way we moved the ball in the first half. We weren't 
as penetrative as I'd have liked us to be. But ultimately, we defended well. We created enough chances to win the game. We took the chances that we did create, or some of them anyway. And, um, you know, it's, it's a positive victory. I know there's been a big sort of outcry about the lack of creativity in this Arsenal squad. And I know that when we're talking about the two games in which we've created the most chances, we're talking about games against Norwich and Newcastle, who are not the greatest sides in the division by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they're probably two of the worst. But, um, you know, as I was saying to Tom earlier on, traditionally, the sides that play the low blocks and, and that come there and very rarely venture forward and cause you problems in breaking them down are the sides towards the bottom end of the table. So as long as we're continuing to beat the teams that we should be beating, then I think we'll be in a decent position um, come the end of the season to make a real charge for a European place. Now, we will, of course, have to take points off some of the teams around us. We will at some point have to do that. You know, it is part and parcel of it. But at this moment in time, we're cruising along quite nicely. We've got that trip to Old Trafford to come, which is another big test, I think. I know that Manchester United have, have really struggled um, recently and, and obviously that culminated in the sacking of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But it's still Manchester United. It's still Old Trafford, a place where we very rarely do well. So I can't go into the game saying, yep, we're going we're gonna to take a we're going to take three points or we're going to, you know, run out um, comfortable winners. But for me, there, there's an opportunity there. Of course, we know that this Manchester United side is far from perfect. We know they have flaws. There's an opportunity for Arsenal to go there and win only uh, or win back-to-back games, the second game back-to-back at Old Trafford uh, for the first time since 1979, which would be quite nice, wouldn't it? But look, if we took a point from Old Trafford, I'm not saying I'd be happy. Obviously, I'd prefer us to win, but I think I'd be content. Content is the right word, I think, in this context. But let's talk a little bit about Manchester United because, as I say, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer recently sacked. Lots of speculation with regards to who was going to come in, who was going to take over. And they have today, although it's been kind of common knowledge for a little while now, uh, decided to appoint Ralph Rangnick. That deal is done and he will join Manchester United as an interim manager for the next six months before moving into what's been described by the club as a consultancy role. Ralph Rangnick, what do we know about him? We know he's a great football mind. We know he's got a lot of respect from the likes of Jurgen Klopp, who have spoken glowingly about him, Thomas Tuchel. I actually read a really interesting in, uh, article about Ralph Rangnick on The Athletic a couple of days ago, which I think people will find interesting. It talks a lot about how he's kind of developed his philosophy, where he kind of got the basis of it from. Talks about a great Dynamo Kiev side that were the kind of talk of the Soviet Union uh, back in the day when he was growing up and his experiences with them. Um the fact that he really studied them closely, watched them, and then kind of moulded that along with Arrigo Sacchi's kind of Milan side, and uh, who was another one of his big inspirations, and came up with this philosophy. And what Ralph Rangnick has done is, although he's not managed at the highest level in terms of clubs, he has a track record of developing clubs, of picking them up from difficult spots and turning them into teams that can compete and teams that are punching, in most cases, above their weight. So I think this is a good football man. This is someone who Manchester United will benefit from bringing to the club. The question is, will he get the autonomy? Will he get the control that he needs in order to start them on that path 
um, you know, and, and see it out. Because remember, he's going to step aside from the manager's role, um, you know, after that six months. That's how we understand it. And then he's still going to be playing an active part behind the scenes. And the question is, are Manchester United going to get a manager in who sees eye to eye with Ralph Ranić? Are they going to bring someone in who looks at what he's done and thinks, yes, these are the right first steps and then takes that on and develops it further with his help as well? Or are they going to appoint someone who comes in and goes, well, I'm not too sure about that, in which case this is a daft move. So I think it's, you know, it's a good appointment on the surface, but it's only a good appointment if Manchester United follow it up in the right way. Will there be a new manager bounce? I'm pretty sure there will be because that's a really talented squad that was vastly underachieving. Will they be a better outfit than they were under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Yes, because I think we all understand that he was very, very limited uh, as a coach. And now they have someone who's at a much higher level. Naturally, that should take them on. So decent appointment from Manchester United. I'm really curious to see how this one's going to work out, to be honest, because although I think it makes sense in a lot of ways, I think there are a couple of potential hiccups and a, and a couple of potential issues that Ranić is going to have to deal with i.e. Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, there's been a lot of talk this weekend off the back of Manchester United going to Stamford Bridge, getting a 1-1 draw about the fact that in, in some people's eyes, Manchester United are a better team without Cristiano Ronaldo. Here's where I stand on this. How can they be a better team without Cristiano Ronaldo when he is one of the, if not the best strikers in world football? Even at 36 years old, Cristiano Ronaldo's level is still up here. Does he press? No. Does he work as hard as others? No. But that's just the way Cristiano Ronaldo is. And it's not new. You know, he's been like that for a few years now. It's been a few years since Cristiano Ronaldo was was sprinting up and down a football pitch. He has adapted his game to deal with what you naturally lose as you enter the latter stages of your career to deal with those losses. He's adapted the way he plays. For example, he's a much bigger threat. He, you know, well, he was always a threat in the air, but he's a much bigger threat now in that area because he's worked on that because he recognizes that he isn't as mobile and a lot of his joy is going to come from, you know, winning headers inside the penalty area. He brings an aura about him. You know, he takes people away you know, Cristiano Ronaldo receives the ball instantly. He's got two or three bodies around him, which can then create spaces for others. So I think there's a lot to be gained from having Cristiano Ronaldo. And, and we were having this debate on the gas tank earlier on today. And I don't think I managed to get my point um, across because, you know, people were interjecting and we were having the discussion. But I guess my point around Cristiano Ronaldo and Manchester United is so much is being made of Ronaldo. And so much, so many people are saying that he's the problem. I don't think that's true. I think the problem is the back line, you know, where you've got people like Aaron Wan-Bissaka who don't always perform, people like Harry Maguire. We've all seen what he's performed like recently. You know, you look at Eric Bailly, he's got a mistake in him. Victor Lindelof isn't perfect. Luke Shaw has been in really poor form. You move into the midfield and you've got McFred, you know, that combination combination, sorry, of Scott McTominay and Fred, a combination that people poke fun at all the time. And then people want to tell me that Cristiano Ronaldo is the problem. Manchester United went to Stamford Bridge yesterday and sat with a low, deep block, a back four, and not one, not two, but three defensive midfielders, three defensive midfield players. They played with three defensive midfield players because Michael Carrick doesn't trust 
the back line to defend as they should because he doesn't trust McTominay or Fred enough to play as a as the lone defensive midfielder because he doesn't even trust them to play as a pair. He added that third midfielder in there because he was worried about that end of the team, not that what was going on at the other end. And that, I'm finding it really kind of hard to kind of digest this Ronaldo criticism. Look, I can't stand Cristiano Ronaldo. He's a Man United legend, which in my eyes makes him an enemy. But he is a fantastic player even still. Those chances that fell to the likes of Fred and, and Antonio Rudiger yesterday, had they fallen to Cristiano Ronaldo, we'd be talking about a different scoreline and a different outcome. He still has so, so much to offer. And, you know, I've I've heard Manchester United fans, you know, praising Michael Carrick for the way he set up the team. Well, actually, when you think about the way the game went, Manchester United had nothing. They had nothing and but for a Jorginho mistake, the kind of which was uncharacteristic, you know, for the Italian, then Manchester United wouldn't have scored and wouldn't have even got close to scoring. I do feel like Chelsea would have worn them down eventually, got their chance and taken it. And, and that would have been that. So we can't sit here and say, you know, oh, Man United were much better at Chelsea and they managed to get a point because Michael Carrick went defensive and picked two forwards who were much more aggressive in the press. Actually, Man United had nothing of that game. So the change in system, all it did, in my opinion, was invite uh, Chelsea onto them and limit what Manchester United could do in an attacking sense. Uh, that's how I see it. You know, the outcome for United was good in the end, but that was more by luck than design. And and that's that's how I see it. So I don't believe Cristiano is a problem. I do know that Ralph Rangnick is likely to implement a, a, a more aggressive pressing style. I do appreciate that Cristiano Ronaldo isn't necessarily cut out for that. But if you want to get the maximum out of this team, I truly believe that you need to find a way of accommodating Cristiano Ronaldo in it because he is capable of producing the kind of moments that no one else in that Manchester United side is going to produce you. And it's as simple as that. Um, you know, that's, that's how I see it. Lots of you uh, commenting on the video on my cactuses. Um, thank you so much. We had a discussion about this on one of yesterday's streams. I told you I want a bit of greenery in the room and cactuses are the only thing that I won't kill after a few days. So uh, thank you for your kind words about my cactuses. I, I might remove them later if people keep giving me stick about them. But anyway, let's uh, <laughs> let's keep going. Um, Going back to just, just kind of wrapping up and, and going full circle on the Chelsea-Manchester United game. As I say, Chelsea incredibly unlucky, in my opinion, not to have taken all three points. I've, you know, I've heard a bit of criticism kind of directed in the way of, of you know, Timo Werner, of, of uh, various other players. Thomas Tuchel's getting stick as well. And for me, that doesn't quite make sense. Thomas Tuchel set out a side, and I've said this about Mikel Arteta on many occasions, if you set out a side that defends effectively and attacks well, then ultimately as a manager, you've done as much as you can. And then it's down to the individuals out there to make sure that they put the ball in the back of the net or make sure that they don't make the kind of individual mistakes that Jorginho did. Just looking back at that mistake specifically, I found it baffling that Jorginho tried to take the ball out of the air there. I mean, I would have headed it or try to just volley it away. Because for someone who's got such great awareness normally, I think he should have known or realised or understood that there was nobody in support of him. I think Chelsea, you know, hung him out to dry in a sense by leaving him there. 
in that position, having all pushed forward. But it's it's a weird mistake. It's a strange mistake. It's an uncharacteristic mistake from someone who's normally so press resistant and so comfortable in bringing the ball down in those kind of areas and then moving it on. But it is what it is. It was a huge stroke of fortune for Manchester United. And that's why I'm not going too big on Manchester United being good or Chelsea being bad, because I do think that the game hinged on some... Um, on some real fortune that went in Man United's favour and some misfortune for Chelsea in terms of that plus some of the opportunities that they missed. And and when you consider how much they controlled the state of the game, I I think you have to say that it was just one of those days for them. Um, The other thing I wanted to quickly talk about was the row between Roy Keane and Jamie Carragher on Sky Sports after the game, because that's been blown up as those kind of things often are. I I remember going on YouTube to find it maybe 15 minutes after it happened. It had already been clipped up by Sky. It had already been put out and it had already had about 40, 50,000 views. And that just, you know, was, for me, I've seen it described as, as YouTube content rather than TV content. And I think that's exactly what it was. So truth be told, when I was watching the game and the game finished, um, my son wanted me to put him to bed, wanted me to do it. So I thought, you know what? I've hardly seen you all weekend because I've been swamped with work. I am going to go and put you to bed. I've seen the game now. Don't really need to hear Roy Keane having a go at Michael Carrick anymore. Don't really need to hear Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank or Jamie Carragher. With all due respect to them, you know, I thought that was it. And I, and I went and I put the little man to bed. And as I was kind of waiting for him to fall asleep, I was scrolling through Twitter and everybody was going crazy. Everybody was talking about this massive row. And I thought, oh, you know, that the pair of them have probably uh, had a a bit of a ding dong, a bit of a disagreement on TV. I didn't really realize how kind of loud and ugly it got. Um, And then when I walked into the living room, my wife, who hadn't turned the channel over, goes to me, oh, my God, it kicked off in the studio. And I thought, whoa, hold on a minute. If you are saying that it kicked off in the studio and you, who has no interest in football whatsoever, uh, were kind of gripped by it and it caught your attention, then this is something I I really need to watch. So I rewound it and I watched it back and I was just cringing the whole time. As I say, it was YouTube content, not TV content. And to hear two pundits going at each other like that, shouting, raising their voices, both trying to uh, get above the other, it, it was, first of all, weird to see on your TV, but also I don't think any of them were making that strong of a point. You know, Roy Keane was talking about how Ronaldo's there to win trophies, not to sit on the bench, which I agree with, but he was making the point that Manchester United should only be challenging for FA Cups and Carabao Cups and that the Champions League and and the Premier League are beyond them. I'd say now that having seen them the way they've started the season, you could say that's true, but I think there was a lot of excitement and kind of optimism around Man United at the start of the season. So I don't think they were wrong to have higher ambitions at the start of their campaign. And Carragher's point was, well, if he's not here to win the league and and, and win the Champions League, then what did they sign him for? And I think they both kind of half had good points, but neither of them were letting the other one really complete their point. And it just became an absolute mess. Um, But I don't know, and this might be controversial, but it felt a little bit staged to me. It felt a little bit like both were overemphasizing their points, perhaps more than they actually believed in them, to create this whirlwind and this TV gold moment. Because ultimately, 
I don't think it was that worth getting heated about. I, I, you know, sometimes you look at an argument and you say, wow, you know, I can really see why these two are so passionate about this subject and why they're going in on it. With this, it was kind of like neither of them, what it felt like, neither of them really believe what they were saying anyway. So I don't know. I don't know. Not a fan of that. Not a fan of that at all. Uh, moving on, let's talk about some of the other games. Uh, Saturday, Crystal Palace 1, Aston Villa 2. Um, I've been really, really impressed with the job that Patrick Vieira has done so far. And I've said recently that I'm really curious to see how Steven Gerrard is going to do, given that he's come from the Scottish Premiership to the Premier League. And he's picked up an Aston Villa side who have plenty of talent within the group, but who obviously weren't performing anywhere near the level required or expected uh, five defeats in a row, saw Dean Smith lose his job and Steven Gerrard's come in and he's really getting a tune out of them. But I am reluctant to get carried away. You know, if he continues to get these kind of results and these kind of performances out of them, great, fair play to him, good luck to him. Um, and I'll quite happily say that Steven Gerrard is a good manager because I, I kind of half think it already, but I, I want to see it in the Premier League. I'm not always convinced by people who do it in Scotland for obvious reasons, because the quality of the league is is not the same. I think if you manage one of Rangers and Celtic, you have a huge advantage over everybody else. I know that can be said in every league, but I think the gulf between Rangers and Celtic in comparison to the rest of the Scottish teams is bigger than, for example, the golfing class between Liverpool and Leicester, let's say. So, you know, that's why... I'm still curious about how Steven Gerrard's going to get on. Time will tell if it's in just a new manager bounce or if it's more. And I'm going to be keeping a close eye on Aston Villa over the next few weeks because it's one that I'm really, really interested um, in seeing how it goes. As for Crystal Palace, I actually thought they didn't play that badly. You know, some defensive fragilities that I think were largely due to Joachim Anderson missing from the back line were on show. Um you know, they didn't really create as much as they normally do, although they dominated uh, in possession. I think for me, what was really telling about this was seeing how disappointed Patrick Vieira was after the game. Now, although Crystal Palace losing to a, a pretty talented Aston Villa side, who are currently, as I say, going for a bit of a new manager bounce, that's not an outrageous result. It's not a, a result that should cast any doubt on Patrick Vieira and the job that he's done so far. But obviously losing that unbeaten record at Selhurst Park, you could see it hurt him. And to add to that, um, you know, just, just the way he come across was like, was the reaction of a man who genuinely feels like he has got quite a bit out of this team so far and that he's raised the bar so much so that a result like this isn't just the kind of, meh, let's move on from it. It feels like a real kick in the balls. I think that really came across in Patrick Vieira's post-match interview and post-match press conference. Moving on, Liverpool 4, Southampton nil. Southampton went there hoping to get something. I don't think many people gave them a chance, if we're being honest. But when you concede after two minutes at Anfield, it doesn't help. Because, you know, when we played Liverpool last week, when we were doing the preview, a lot was made of the fact that Liverpool love to start fast. And if you can weather that early storm and hang in there, then quite often you can have, I'm not going to say you have a, an opportunity to beat them or that it's easy to beat them or anything like that, but you you will then likely get a foothold in the game for the last sort of 20 minutes of the half. And maybe if you're good enough, you can take advantage of that. I think it happened 
with Arsenal. You know, we went to Anfield and we survived the first sort of 20, 30 minutes. And then there was a little period where you felt like, well, this is the time to catch them cold because they do go off the boil a little bit. I don't know if it's because they play the early stages with such an intensity that they they then drop off slightly until they get in for the break. But Southampton, and, and, and look, Southampton did have a period where they got a foothold in the game. But if you can see two minutes in at Anfield, you've got a mountain to climb and it's very unlikely you're going to get anything from them. The front three are incredibly ruthless. Um, and Thiago was kind of the, the talk of the town for Liverpool because there's been a lot made of his signing. You know, what, is he a flop? Is he not a flop? Lots of people kind of were suggesting that he come to the Premier League and he can't hack it. Injuries have been a problem. COVID's been a problem for Thiago as well. But I think we're really starting to see now uh, what he can do, the fact that he can control games, the, the fact that his passing is brilliant, that he is willing to take those risks in the way he passes the ball in order to break teams down and create chances. And I think, you know, he's someone that's uh, looks as though he's finally found himself at Liverpool and, and, and watch his space because he's a really, really talented player. Moving on, uh, Brighton-Leeds was the game that I did commentary on on Saturday evening and not much to talk about in terms of the game here, although the big talking point coming away from it was that the Brighton fans or a section of the Brighton fans were booing the team at the final whistle. They were frustrated, disappointed that they didn't manage to take all three points against Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds. And I would just say this, Brighton fans, remember where you've come from. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but you could see it angered Graham Potter, and rightly so. You know, he responded uh, to the critics. He responded to those who booed at the full-time whistle. He couldn't believe that that was happening. And when you look at the Premier League table, you know, where Brighton are, when you consider that in every season that they've been in the division, they've been fighting relegation, to be ninth 13 games in, you know, a third of the way through the season is is very good. It's not just respectable, it's brilliant. If Brighton finish in the top half of the table, having finished, what, 16th, 17th last time out, that's a massive improvement, huge improvement. So the fact that people are booing the Brighton team and Graham Potter just feels mad to me. And, I, and I'll repeat it again. Brighton fans, remember where you've come from. Prime example of that entitlement that football fans seem to have nowadays that makes me feel sick to the stomach. Uh, moving on to uh, some more games on Saturday uh, Norwich nil, Wolves nil. Another point for Dean Smith's side. You know, they, they're a preferred three, obviously, being in front of their own fans, but it wasn't to be just a point for them. I think Bruno Large's side will be slightly disappointed with this one because they've been on good form and. You know, they only managed a couple of shots on target despite having the lion's share of possession at Wolverhampton Wanderers. So I think they'll feel like that was an opportunity missed given how kind of um, how flimsy Norwich were at the start of the season. I know in recent weeks they've picked up back-to-back victories, but, you know, it, it is a game that if I'm Bruno Large and I'm looking at the way Wolves have played this season, I'm looking at and going, yeah, it's away from home. A point is not a disaster, but I tell you what, I fancy us there. And uh, unfortunately for Wolves, they weren't able to get any more than a point. Um, moving on, let's go um, back to Saturday because there was... Uh, nope, I've covered all the Saturday fixtures, haven't I? Yep, covered them all. So just to round up the results from Saturday, Arsenal 2, Newcastle United, nil, Crystal Palace 1, Aston Villa 2, Liverpool 4, Southampton nil, Norwich nil, Wolves nil, Brighton nil, Leeds nil. 
Moving on to Sunday, of course, Burnley versus Tottenham was postponed. That game didn't go ahead because of the weather conditions up at Turf Moor. Burnley desperately trying to clear the pitch, couldn't do it, just couldn't manage it. Sean Dyche uh, coming out, showing how hard he is uh, by walking out onto the field to uh, inspect what was going on in just a white shirt. I thought that was mad. I thought that was mad. I mean, there was me. Uh, the day before at the Emirates Stadium with my Arsene Wenger coat done up to here, my hood up, a hat on, a snood, uh, gloves, three pairs of socks, etc., etc. And Sean Dice just casually walks outside as if it's nothing. Well, I'll tell you what, Sean, you might think you're hard, but Kieran Tierney would have done it in short sleeves. So there you go. Uh, moving on uh, to... Some more of the action from Sunday. Uh, Leicester City defeated Watford by four goals to two. And and this is the thing with Watford at the moment, right? I'm, I've come to accept that they're just going to be very up and down. They're a side who are so capable of producing shocks and shock results, but they are a side who can be equally as dreadful. And what you are seeing with this Watford side is, is a really poor defence. Claudio Ranieri is renowned for making teams more stubborn, more difficult to beat. Um, you know, he, he did a brilliant job with Leicester, did some good jobs in Italy, uh, sort of stabilising Sampdoria recently, stabilised Roma as well. I think for me, Claudio Ranieri will be looking at that January transfer window and thinking that can't come soon enough. Now, I know Watford have spent already. I know Watford have invested already, but I think Claudio Ranieri will be banging on Mr Pozzo's door and asking for funds to improve that defence. He has to because their chances are severely reduced. The chances of staying up, that is, if they do not improve on individuals in those areas. It's not a system thing. It's not a coaching thing. Claudio Ranieri, as I say, has proven time and time again that he can get results out of defenders, but he cannot uh, polish a turd. And it's as simple as that. Watford you feel have what it takes in an attacking sense with that front three of Saar, Dennis and King to cause people problems and and probably in that department have enough to stay up. But defensively, they're letting themselves down and I think they need to make some dramatic improvements there if they're going to keep... Um, keep their heads above water. Uh, Moving on from that one, Brentford defeated Everton by a goal to nil. Ivan Toney converting from the penalty spot. I tell you what, Rafa Benitez has got to be in trouble. I mean, surely Everton are sitting down in 14th place in the Premier League. I guess the only silver lining is that they're only, what, five points off of the European places, five points off of sixth. So, You could say that, you know, it's not a disaster yet. It's not time to press the panic button just yet. But I just watch them under Benitez and I find them so dull, so boring. They started the season like a house on fire, as Everton always seemed to do. But it's really tailing off now. And I just wonder if, you know, with a Merseyside derby just around the corner, if they were to be beaten, beaten comprehensively by Liverpool, I just wonder if Rafa Benitez might find himself in a bit of trouble. Um, Good coach. Always has been, you know what you're going to get from Rafa Benitez, but it feels like with some other similar coaches who are kind of of that generation who have been around the block a little bit, they're not keeping up with the way things are moving, the way things are changing. Everton, a club with huge ambition, clearly, but they're not really showing that on the football pitch at the moment. I wonder, you know, Rafa, I feel like he's in a bit of trouble. I really, really do. And I wonder what's going to happen if indeed 
he does get a heavy beating against Liverpool. Remember, he's an ex-Liverpool manager, which made it difficult for the fans to accept him in the first place. A drubbing from Liverpool with an ex-Liverpool manager at the helm, that could be a real problem. And that could be the turning point in terms of uh, the fans who still stick with him, because there are a few, from what I understand, um, you know, they could turn the other way if, if, of course, that is how it goes down. But another disappointing result for them. On the other hand, it was a good result uh, for Brentford, who picked up their first win in five. And, and Brentford, you know, they started the season very, very well, but three consecutive defeats uh, against Leicester, against Burnley, and then against Norwich uh, started to cast doubt over whether they'd have the kind of credentials or the minerals, if you like, to uh, to stay in the division this season. They then managed a 3-3 draw at Newcastle, a game they felt that they probably should have got more of, uh, more from, I should say. But this result kind of just eases the pressure on them. You know, well, the relative pressure. I know that, you know, their fans are quite level-headed and quite grounded and understand exactly, unlike the Brighton fans, it seems, where they've come from. So I think that that result will do them good. It just buys them a bit more breathing space. Uh, We've already talked about the big game uh, and the big game being or the big televised game, I should say, uh, between Chelsea and Manchester United. But the other fixture I just wanted to touch on uh, from Sunday was Manchester City against West Ham United. I think, you know, and and people have been kind of mocking me for using the term when talking about Arsenal, you know, free hit is how you would have described this fixture going into it for West Ham United. Great for us. They drop points. Um, You know, fantastic for us. And, you know, when you think about where we were at, you know, three games in and where we are now, you have to be pleased. You have to be delighted. I've said throughout that I don't think that West Ham will maintain uh, a position in the top four throughout the course of the season. I think the demands of the Europa League plus the lack of depth that they have in certain areas, uh, I think is going to cost them. And I, and I think that although I feel that way, I'm not going to judge them too harshly on going to Manchester City and getting beaten. The game seemed a lot closer than it was because of uh, the late goal that West Ham got. I think it was deep into stoppage time. I think it was a 96 minute or something like that, which kind of made the scoreline look a bit more respectable. But it was typical Manchester City controlling the game, scoring Manchester City-like goals, causing Manchester City-like problems to their opponents, strangling the game, not by sitting deep and, and, and you know forcing people to play in front of them, but by keeping the ball and... Um, and by wearing people out. So fair play to Manchester City. Um, That's it for the games. I think we'll take some of your questions uh, for the last sort of 10, 15 minutes of the show. Uh, Looking forward to hearing from a few of you. Uh, Let's see what we've got, what we've got, what have we got, what have we got? Lewis Cooper, I love the mug. I'm glad you like the mug because people have been giving me grief today about my cactuses, for God's sake. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's see. Let's see what else we've got. Um, lots of you talking about uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, referring to the Brighton fans. BX Gunner 81 says, ungrateful bunch. Yeah, agree. Uh, Alex Garner says, hello, Harry. Glad to catch you live. Hope the family okay and the and the little ones growing and eating all your food. <laughs> yeah, no, everyone's well. Thank you so much, man. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about football and, and how important it is, but ultimately that's what matters in life. And um, yeah, everyone's doing well. Thank you. Um, I'm struggling with a lack of sleep, but we get through it. We keep pushing. Get some questions in the chat box. By the way, I should have said 
do this before I started diving into the comments, but there's so many that will, will be fine. But look, if you've got a, a specific question about Arsenal, about the Premier League, about my views on anything in football, um, then please do uh, pop your questions in. Put a little cue at the beginning of the question. It might, makes it much easier for me to pick those out in and amongst the chaos. Um We've got over 166 of you watching us right now on YouTube. We've only got 58 likes on the board. Let's get that up as close to 100 as we possibly can. It really, uh, really does help. Uh, big hello to Edison uh, Metivier. I hope I've said that right, mate. If I haven't, I'm sorry. Uh, he said, subscribed a few months ago and I enjoy your calm and level-headed approach. Keep it up. All the best from Trinidad. Love to Trinidad, mate. And thank you uh, for your uh, kind words. Let's see what else we have got here. Big hello to Stanky as well, who joins us uh, from Hertfordshire, not too far. Um, let's see what else we have. Uh, Jonathan, this is a good question. You can only choose one, a new striker or a new midfielder in January. For me, I think there's a need for both. I do acknowledge that. I do think that we have a couple of good strikers at the moment in Aubameyang and Lacazette who are good strikers in their own right, but just don't quite fit in with the philosophy, with what it is we're going to do. Neither have the specific skill set that Mikel Arteta requires. I've said this before, in an ideal world, you'd have a hybrid of both of them, but we don't live in an ideal world. And I think a lot of the reason that Mikel Arteta was trying to find a way of getting both of them into the side was because he felt like he needed elements of what Aubameyang brings to the side, but also elements of what Lacazette brings. So I do think we need a striker, but I think the need for a midfielder is greater because of the lack of depth there, because of the fact that we play with two rather than, you know, the one striker. I think we need to address that more urgently. The fact that we're going to lose Thomas Partey to the African Cup of Nations, as long with Mohamed Elneny and be left with Ainsley Maitland-Niles, um, Sambi Lakonga and a, a Granite Xhaka who will be returning from a really long-term injury. I think there's a greater need there. So I'd pick the midfielder, but I, just to kind of caveat that, I do think that there is a need for us to strengthen in both positions. I think that's the next phase of this rebuild. Uh, Messi2Y says, do you reckon Tierney and Nuno can play together in the same team against certain sides? It's a difficult one because... What's the role that you're going to give to whoever is not playing left back? Are you suggesting that we change to a back three in which Tierney plays as the left centre-back and Tavares plays as the wing-back? I, I, I don't know that it's right to keep changing systems. And I definitely wouldn't change the system to accommodate specifically to left backs. So I don't think they can play together. I, I think there will be certain points in certain games. For example, if Arsenal are holding on to a lead, then you could sacrifice your left winger and Chuck Nuno Tavares there because we've seen that he's competent in terms of getting forward, not always delivering the best kind of end product, but at least getting in the right positions, causing people problems. He's just really strong runner, good dribbler, etc. I think you could bring him on to kind of offer that bit more protection. I mean, I know that a winger should protect anyway, but being a left back gives Nuno Tavares that little bit more defensive now, so that little bit more of a kind of defensive mentality. So I think you could do it in certain points or at certain points in certain games, but I don't think it's something that you start with, if I'm being honest, unless you're talking about a change of formation, in which case then maybe. 
Let's see uh, what else we've got. Uh, Patrick Carlson says, would you play El Nini against United? I'd be tempted to because of what happened last season, but no, I wouldn't. Um, I, I would go with La Conga and Partey. I think that is the the best combination we've got at the moment. I, I might have said Ainsley Maitland-Niles had La Conga not played so well at the weekend, but based on his performance, you know, assuming he's fresh, fit, ready to go, then I'd probably play uh, La Conga. I think, look, forget what I would do. Look at what Mikel Arteta is likely to do. And I think that, it's very clear that El Nenny is third in the pecking order at the moment. I think it goes Laconga, Maitland Niles, and then El Nenny. So, uh, barring a disaster, I don't imagine um, that Mohamed El Nenny will be starting at Old Trafford. But stranger things have happened. Uh, Claudius says, Would you take Mbuemo from Brentford as a Lacazette replacement? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I do like Mbuemo. There are elements to his game that I really like. I think he's a great runner. I think he's very physical. I think he's very powerful, um, good in the air, underrated in the air. In fact, a lot of the plaudits in that department kind of go to Ivan Tony, but I think he's quite underrated in that way as well. No, I wouldn't. I'd be aiming higher than that with all due respect uh, to Brian Mbuemo. Sam says, does Randick's work permit issue mean he can't train the team this week as well until it is accepted? I think technically, Sam, he can't. Um, he can't do anything technically, but I'm pretty sure that we are going to see um, some sort of input from Ralph Ranick between now and when Arsenal take on uh, Manchester United on Thursday. I think, you know, there was rumours yesterday, wasn't there, that there was a an input from Ranick in terms of the way United set up and with the team selection, Michael Carrick rubbished those reports. Gary Neville seemed adamant that that was the case. I think for me, it probably wasn't, but you probably will see it be the case on Thursday when Arsenal take on Manchester United. Uh, let's take this one from Shoot the Defence. Big hello to Stell and all the rest of the guys over at Shoot the Defence. Make sure you check it out. Fantastic uh, football podcast. Uh, they've got some great shows under the Shoot the Defence media network, so please do. Uh, in fact, click on them in the chat and it will take you straight over to the page. Give it a subscribe. You know the drill by now. Give them a follow on Twitter. Uh, Stell says, Harry, thoughts on Bielsa, please? Seems like he's exempt from criticism by the football hipsters. I get where you're coming from on this because I've looked at Leeds this season and gone, oh dear, you know, there's there's obviously some issues there. You know, they're not anywhere near as effective as they were last season. I think we've seen this before, you know, the second season being more difficult than the first in many ways because you've been sussed out, you've been sort of worked out, I guess, uh, by your opponents and by the rest of the division. But what I would say slightly in defence of Bielsa this time around is that he's had a hell of a lot of injuries and Leeds simply don't have the depth. Um, to be without Ailing, for example, for a period of time, who's a key player, has, has been a blow. Calvin Phillips has been in and out of the side with injuries. is obviously another very big part of that team. But perhaps more significantly than any of those, Patrick Bamford's absence has really hit them hard. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was right up there among the Premier League's top goal scorers last season, and they've really struggled to score goals, haven't they? So I think that it's it would be really harsh to overlook um, the fact that they've, you know, that they've been missing those players and pin it all on Marcelo Bielsa. But look, he has to do better. The team has to do better. And ultimately, he's responsible. 
let's take a few more. Um, just scrolling through, just trying to get um, questions from people whose I haven't read just yet. Uh, let's take this one from Alex. Uh, watching the game against Newcastle, did you, like me, feel like we avoid playing the ball through the middle too much? I don't think Partey was ever an option for Gabriel and White going forward. I think, Alex, when you when you show yourselves to be a side that likes to build up play from the back and likes to progress the ball through the lines quite quickly, which is obviously what we'd like to do in an ideal world, I think the first thing that your opponents will do is shut out the passing lanes between the centre-back and the centre-midfielder, which then forces you wide. And that's why you've got to move the ball quickly and with zip and with tempo, so that when it does go back into a central position, maybe even to the centre-back, you've pulled someone out of position and created a bit of an opening and a gap to then break the lines. So I feel like it's it's something that we're going to have to learn to, to deal with better. I think there's a very simple solution, and it's as simple as moving the ball with a greater zip and with a greater tempo. But... You know, of course, um, you know, uh, you're right in that we didn't do it all that often. And I don't think we did it in the first half much because we were moving the ball too slow. And um, when you move the ball too slow, you make it easy for people to cut out those passing lanes. But as I say, if you are a side who prides yourself and, and always looks to build out from the back, it makes sense as an opposition to make cutting those passing lanes out your first port of call. Uh, Lewis Cooper says, do you expect much um, activity in the January transfer window? I don't. Um, I've got to be honest. I think we'll do one or two bits of business. Um, one of them might be a departure rather than an incoming. But I do think that we are, you know, uh, look, I think a lot of it depends on what happens with, with Granite Xhaka. If he gets up to speed quickly, which it looks like he's on course to do because he's ahead of schedule by all accounts in his recovery. If Granit Xhaka gets up to speed quickly, then I think Arsenal will be reluctant to go out in the window knowing it's going to be difficult to get kind of a long-term signing in and patch something up. So I think that will play a huge part on, on how big we go in the window. But if we see that maybe he suffers a setback or that he isn't quite up to speed, then I think Arsenal... We'll kind of be forced because if we're in and around the position we're in now come January and it's so clear that we're really thin in the centre of midfield and Arsenal don't address that. And as a consequence, we fail to qualify for Europe. They'll have a lot to answer for. You know, they really will, because it would feel like they'd done the hard work and they needed one more signing, one more competent arrival to kind of give us that little bit more security in that area of the park to then see us continue our form and continue our progression and development as a side. If we were to miss out off the back of that, I would be personally very frustrated and disappointed with Arsenal. Um, you know, I think there is a need to strengthen. I, I really, really do in that area. That midfield area is a big, big problem for me. And when you consider the departures in the African Cup of Nations are both, or, the, you know, if Pepe goes as well, you're, you're going to have three players going. But two of them being from a really key area of the park to fail to address that and then see it blow up in our faces for me would be really difficult to stomach. So I don't think we're going to do loads of business, but I think we are going to try at least and, uh, and you know, work on bringing in the central midfield. I think we bloody have to. 
Right. I am going to leave it there. Um, going to leave it there. Thank you all uh, so much for tuning in. Thank you uh, so much for getting involved in the comment section. Don't forget, if you want to enter our giveaway uh, to win yourself uh, one of the shirts, uh, one of the current Arsenal shirts, the, a shirt of your choice to celebrate the Chronicles of Aguna's third birthday, you can do so by uh, following the instructions rolling across the bottom of the screen. If you're listening on the audio, you need to go over to Twitter, find at Chronicles underscore AFC, check out our pinned tweet and follow the instructions. Alternatively, if you don't have Twitter, then you can send me an email to chroniclesafc at gmail.com. Lots of you have been doing so. I've been receiving them. Don't worry, I haven't replied to every single one because... You know, it's just it's long, basically, but um, I am getting them. They are all going into the draw. So thank you uh, all so much for doing that. Just a quick reminder again for those of you joining us a little bit later. Um, I will be on BBC Radio London for an Arsenal special with Sophie Nicolau and BBC's very own Aaron Paul. Join us. BBC London. You can find it on BBC Sounds or you can tune in via the radio, whatever you prefer. I'll post the link on my Twitter uh, shortly before we go on air. But do have a listen. Let us know what you think. It's an Arsenal special from 7 to 8 p.m. UK time. There is a number that you can call. There's a number that you can text if you'd like to get involved in the conversation. And we'd love to have as many of you involved as possible. Right. I'll be back very, very soon with more Arsenal-related content. Tomorrow, and I know that people love Transfer Talk, we're going to be discussing some of the potential options for Arsenal at centre-forward as, uh, as Arsenal start to look ahead to the future. Uh, until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe and all the best. Goodbye. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon.